Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that might be here. On Sunday night, we uh, go uh, uh, general commentary, verse by verse. We usually cover a chapter at a time, sometimes two, depending. We've slowed down on, on Luke. And then on Sunday morning, we do an in-depth study. So that's where you get a general broad view also of, uh, with a full commentary at night and then at, in the morning on Sunday, something in-depth. And during the middle of the week, we take smaller epistles and we slow down even more so that you have different levels of teaching. Uh, and so that as you grow in the Lord through the years, it's not just general teaching of just reading a few verses and saying a commentary, but you learn how to study, how to tear down, how to look at the text. And, and you really will learn from the pulpit and from the teaching um, uh, that you hear. And, and uh, uh, often the, the pastor is really duplicated in the people. Uh, that can be good, that can be bad. Um, you know, so we try to stick as close as we can to the scripture so that God can mold you into his image and not into mine. And that's um, always a good thing. All right. Why don't you turn to Luke chapter 16, please? Luke chapter 16. It's been a busy day for Jesus. This day began in chapter 14. He's been speaking to religious Pharisees who invited him to eat, trying to set him up with the man of the palsy. He has spoken to the multitudes. He has spoken to his disciples back and forth, the Pharisees in the background. The pressing material is that you must repent unto the kingdom of God. It's through the gospel, no other way. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. Um, the Pharisees are constantly attacking him and opposing him. He's teaching his disciples as they are moving towards Jerusalem. They have a false sense of understanding what is going to happen. They feel the kingdom is going to arrive. They feel they are just going to reign and they just can't wait to get there. They can almost taste it. And um, when they get there, it will all fall apart because they didn't hear what Jesus said all along. Um, by the time we get to chapter 16, um, he has been given all these parables um, regarding uh, the salvation of those and um, warning against riches and wealth and the wrong priorities. We kind of looked at it in depth this morning with the um, um, rich man and Lazarus. But here as he comes to chapter 16 now, we have the parable of the unjust steward. Now, remember, parables are story forms that Jesus took from common day life. And um, he would take something that was commonly known, putting it next to something that wasn't known that he was teaching. And then putting what you did know next to what you didn't know, you would actually come to know what you didn't know. So, as he says, a parable... A sower went out to sow seed, and they understood a very common thing. And the man would go out there, and he would scatter seed as he has uh, burrowed the land. And, uh, and then he would associate the gospel in the very same way. So they would get an imagery of what he was talking about, and they would understand. And uh, this parable here, again, remember, parables contrast or compare. And they have a punchline and have a central message. And you never want to give meaning to everything in it unless it's given within the parable. You can make observations of what it's teaching, but the punchline is really the one single message. And so here, um, the parable of the unjust 
um, steward is given to us. It is unique of Luke, like so many others we've pointed out. Uh, he has material that uh, none of the other uh, synoptics have. And so in verse 1 and 2, we get the situation of the parable, um, uh, and is that of, uh, of theft. Um, he also said to his disciples, so now he comes back to his disciples. The Pharisees are in the background. Okay, the multitudes are following, a great following uh, unto Jerusalem. There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that um, this man was wasting his goods. And so he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be my steward. Jesus turns to his disciples now. He um, has just rebuked the Pharisees in the previous chapter for murmuring against him because he is receiving um, publicans and sinners, uh, tax collectors, and, and eating with them and uh, saving them. And he nailed them with the uh, threefold parable of uh, the lost uh, sheep, the lost coin, and the two lost sons, which one repented. And the joy there is in heaven over one lost sinner when they repent. Now we have this individual who is very dishonest. And um, the disciples here, I'm sure, include the 12, but way beyond it because you've got many disciples that are in the crowds. And um, this steward here, the steward is a household manager. Um, sometimes wealthy people of the day, they would... Um, uh, they would hand over their business, their land affairs, and other matters to um, um, a household manager who would run the business, the properties, the rentals, the, the harvest, and different things. And, and they, nothing belonged to them, but they were responsible to make sure that everything ran, everything produced in that. And apparently this individual was uh, pretty dishonest, and um, he's accused by uh, another person, and the accusation... Uh, was true, and it was believed as true as he confronts him. Uh, the word there, wasting, means to squander or to scatter. It's the very same word of the previous parable of the what we usually call the prodigal son who wasted his, uh, his inheritance in um, chapter 15, verse 13. The same thing. So you see a common thread through all the material, that of wealth, um, that which takes us away from God, that which is meant for good, not for evil. Uh, money is not evil in itself. It's amoral. Uh, it's neutral. It's the love of money, Paul says to Timothy, is it's a problem. Where people covet money and they live for money and they just they'll do anything for money and it becomes their God. And um, because money does open doors and can allow you to do things, but I... Um, in the years that I've lived, I've, I've noticed that even though money can resolve some issues, um, money and a lot of it can bring a lot more problems than solutions because it opens so many dark doors and so many doors that are so ungodly and everything else. And certainly no man or woman who is in this fallen state as you and I are in can resist that on their own. Uh, how many people have started well with a very moral life and attitude, and they were talented in music or whatever it may be, 
and they somehow think that they can handle the pressure and the temptations of the world and they start crossing over and begin to be unequally yoked on a regular basis and, and the, the temptations and, and all the junk of the world starts attracting and corrupting them and before they know it, they're, they're way out there. And they could have never imagined they would be so far away from God. They, they would have said, not me, I, I would never do that. And yet, um, I've seen many individuals go this way in the past 41 years. Um, he, he's confronted in verse 2 um, with the charge. And, and he's ordered to, to show his books and because he's going to be dismissed. Um, so the accusation and, and um, the very confrontation... Um, there is no question here of his defense, or is it true? Uh, it, it's a fact. And um, in verse 3, it says, Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. Um, I cannot dig. Um, I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved... What I will do, he says, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So the solution of the unjust steward, and that's how he's introduced. So he is functioning on a level that is not godly, that is not moral, that is not ethical. The only goal is, how can I be benefit? How can I get out of this? Now... That's something that happens a lot within Christian circles, that everybody begins well, but then if you put your guard down, pretty soon we start justifying certain things. As you know, in our world, there are many things that are said to be legal. Um, medicinal marijuana, which is nothing but a license for loadies, okay? Um... Colorado is going to find out in a few more years how bad their state's going to get because of that. Uh, Europe has gone that way before. Uh, Amsterdam, go see what happened there. And many other places, even in France. Um, so there's a lot of things that, that will come through culture because culture changes and, and uh, societies change from morality to immorality to amorality. Um, and what is called legal by law may be permissible, but it's not always moral or ethical. So that's the question that you and I have to ask whenever something's presented to us or something would be considered. Not is it legal, because it's legal to smoke marijuana if you have a little licensing or permit. But for a Christian, that's not moral. The law says you can kill a baby in the womb. But for a Christian, that's not moral or ethical. So, again, our standard is not our own. It's the one that the Bible gives to us. It lines up with the moral character of God. And since we are his children, this man is functioning on a complete different standard. 
Uh, and, and he's figuring out all of a sudden here in, in verse 3, um, he said within himself, he's thinking, you know, and he's thinking fast, what shall I do? You know, I'm gonna, they're going to take the stewardship away. I, I, I can't labor. You know, I want to do that. And um, to beg, I'm, a, I'm ashamed. I don't, I don't want to do that. Too proud to work. And too ashamed to beg. And so the text indicates that it came to him quickly. It didn't take long because this is the way he's functioned. You and I know people. We used to live in the world. We used to hang out with people. And maybe as you were growing up, and maybe you were one of these individuals. I mean, just that kind of stuff. You know, hey, I figured out. You, didn't, you weren't worried whether it was right or wrong. You just said, this is the way we can do it. And this is the way the world functions. And the world functions in this level on, when it becomes so decadent on a normal basis. All you have to do is look to our political system today, to our news media, which both straight out lie to us, straight out contradict themselves. The evidence is all around. And they don't even blush. <laughs> and so you see the degraded level that our nation has come to where we've lost every sense of self-respect and dignity and honor to our nation that was once founded on the principles of God. And we've been so far removed from it that there, there, isn't, there isn't any more social conscience. And all of this undermining has come through the Trojan horse of education, the universities, the public school system. And so progressively through the decades, this is what we've reaped to because we've sown to the wind. We reap the whirlwind. It's destroyed our families. It's destroyed our homes. It's destroyed our economy. It will destroy our nation if there's no turning. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. These civilizations existed for hundreds of years. We're just a baby. 230-some years. And yet this man here, his standard is very low. It's self-survival. He's the most important one. And so, in verse 4, he resolves what he will do. When I am put out of the stewardship, that I may receive, be received into their houses. So he, he handles the billing. He keeps the inventory. And what he's going to do is we're going to read is he's going to call all these men who owe the rich man. And he's going to alter the books. He's going to fix them. So this way when he's put out, these men will be indebted to him. Listen to verse 5 down to 7 as he gathers them. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him. And he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, 
a hundred measures of oil. And so he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. 800 to 900 gallons of oil. It's an eight to nine gallon per measure. He cuts it in half. Straight up. This would make this man indebted to him when, when, when he would be put out. He's securing his future. Uh, the, the children of, of this world, of this generation, the children of darkness are very clever. They're very shrewd in how they do things. The next one in verse 7 says, Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write 80. Now, we have no idea why 50% to one and 80 on the other, only 20%. But maybe it was the economy and the price of the material and stuff like that. But whatever the reason was, he is doing it in such a way, notice he says, you write. So they are writing on their own. And so when he leaves, he still, uh, he was ripping off his rich master, the guy he works for. And now before he's dismissed, he's going to rip him off even more <laughs> to make sure he's taken care of. Remember, Jesus is teaching his disciples. These parables have one punchline, which we're going to see, and then Jesus is going to pick up principles to teach from this parable. Notice in verse 8, we have the response of the rich master to the resolve of the unjust steward. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. So the master commends the very steward that has robbed from him, and now he robs them even more. Often people can't understand this parable, and they blame Jesus for commending the dishonesty of this man. No. First of all, even the master did not commend him for his dishonesty. He commended him for his shrewdness, his cleverness. To make provisions for himself. He's not commending him for his dishonesty. And certainly Jesus is not speaking. This is the master. The sons of light are opposed to the sons of this world and their generation here that he's speaking about. They're more shrewd. In other words, sometimes the unbeliever is more diligent and more tenacious in thinking of ways to be able to be a good steward of what they have. The problem is that they do it dishonestly a lot of times. They want to cut corners. Somebody wants to work for money under the counter. They don't want to pay Uncle Sam taxes. They go do a job for you and say, you know what, if, if, you, if you 
pay me cash, then I'll give you a receipt for a lower amount. And, and there's many things that are done today so that this way they don't have to pay taxes. And so here, in verse 9, now Jesus steps in. Now he's speaking. He's making commentary. He gives the principles that he's going to teach regarding this parable and the unjust steward. In verse 9, he says, and I say to you, notice Jesus is the authority here. Jesus said the believer is responsible and accountable to use money to ensure eternal spiritual investment as he's going to use this. I say to you, make friends of yourselves by unrighteous mammon. Unrighteous mammon, the Aramaic word of mammon. It's, it's, it's almost a power in, in, um, in man. They're synonymous. Um, again, it's a love of money, not money itself that's evil. It's, uh, it's the desire and longing to possess it and to do anything to possess it. Um, and so here, as this steward was diligent to secure future investments for himself to secure his life, now Jesus is going to deal with the more important things, the true riches, uh, our, our handling of those material, physical uh, finances and materials of this unrighteous mammon and how we deal with it and what we do with it in relationship to spiritual things and the kingdom of God as investors. Now, any scripture can be twisted to pressure you and to manipulate you to, to give money to the church and to programs and everything like that. You should never allow anybody to do that. We believe in tithing. We believe that you are to give to God what God has blessed you with. But that's your discretion. We don't try to give you any sad stories. We don't tell you what our problems are. We just teach the word of God. Take an offering on Sunday once a week as the scriptures tell us. And we leave it there. But when we come to the scriptures, we teach. We hit it just as hard as the scriptures tell it. Without any apologies. But we never want to be accused of manipulating or... Um, um, lean heavy on people as if um, we are depending on them. Uh, the Lord is so good and we have no complaints about God and what he's done with us and how he takes care of us. And the body of Calvary Pasadena has been very gracious through the years that we are able to do outreaches, to do things. We do medical outreaches and we never take an offering no matter where we go. We, Calvary Child Pasadena, are givers. We want to bless others as God has blessed us. And that's always the principle that, that we see in Scripture. Now, again, the authority is Jesus, I say to you, and to make friends, again, of this unrighteous mammon, uh, to benefit um, people regarding the Word of God, the work of God, um, so that when you fail, he says there, um, the word fail there, has to do with when you die. So when you come to the end of your life and you go to heaven, you're welcomed and you receive the return investment. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. How many parables Jesus gave? 
And that one evil servant who says, well, you know, I, I, I knew you were an astute master and you didn't fear. And I just put it, I, I just dug a hole and put it there. He says, out of your own mouth, you condemned yourself. You should at least put it in the bank and got me interest. He says, take that from the one and give it to the one who has ten. To those who much is given, much more is required. And so everything that God gives to you, everything that you comes into your hands, you're a steward of that. And God will hold me responsible for what I've done with it, how I've invested it, what I've done with it, how I spend it. Um, because everything I have is the Lord. Uh, everything comes through his hand. Now, notice to receive you into everlasting home. That's heaven. So though the parable is talking about they are here on earth with the physical things and non-believers, the teaching is a parallel alongside. Now, it's a contrast. As he was dishonest, we are not to be dishonest. But we're to be as zealous and as diligent to do a good job in the return. In verse 10, Jesus, there are two types of people in stewardship and it involves character and he is faithful in what is he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust in also in much a very simple principle he gives here those being faithful in the small things will be so in the bigger things the scripture says, despise not the day of small things. You know, some of you come in here and you don't know the history of Calvary, Pasadena. Uh, and you might believe that we're always here and everything. Well, this church started from a home Bible study with three people in a home in 1980 in Alhambra on Hidalgo Street at George Gutierrez's house. And we were just having Bible study and the people kept coming and kept growing. And um, that was around March of uh, 80. And then in July, we stepped out and we said, well, let's have a Sunday service and see what happens. And um, about 70 people or 80 people showed up and we never went back into the home. And God just began to add. And, and we went from a little uh, office to, uh, you know, renting uh, churches, Masonic Lodge, uh, women's clubs, uh, uh, YMCA's, uh, other churches, cockroach-infested theaters, uh, everything for six and a half years. And then the Lord directed us this way, and he gave us this building. But it was the stewardship of the smallest things on how to handle things and what God was doing so that we were able to deal with the bigger things that he would give to us. And our ministry, I don't consider our ministry big, really, compared to other mega churches. But again, we're not interested in, 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 in competing or in coveting what other people have. A man can receive nothing unless it's given to him of God. And so we rest in the Lord. We're here to serve you. We're here to pray for you. We're here to instruct you, to oversee the ministry, to make sure you're not uh, uh, try to be ripped off from other people that walk in or anything else. And uh, our desire is just to be stewards of what God has given to us because we will have to give an account one day of what God has handed to us. And uh, I want to reproduce, I want to multiply whatever God gives. And um, God has been so good to us. So here again, um, 
the little things, um, then the bigger things will come. In verse 11, then Jesus says, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you to your trust the true riches? So Jesus says God will not impart to irresponsible stewards the money and the valuable things that really are based upon spiritual matters if they're not good stewards of those smaller things and those tangible matters. The true riches are not the physical. They're the spiritual matters, but here he's dealing with the reality that we live in this world, and often it'll be through money. But again, if God is dealing with it and doing it and God is blessing, then we also will give us the wisdom and the direction to be stewards of that. And then time will reveal whether God was in something or not. As I've told you often, um, God gave us this building. We, we were up to about 500 people when we were uh, in the theater there on um, Atlantic and, and Maine. This was back in... Uh, 1986 and God well the year before and then God took us down to 300 because of course it wasn't very appealing to be in that cockroach infested theater and you know it was cold and everything else and and so we dwindled down to 300 and it was almost like God saying you know I can't give you a building with 500 you'll boast I'm going to take you down like Gideon to 300 that way you can't boast at all and God gave us this building, which they sold to us for a million eighty thousand dollars with three hundred people. Now I don't know how it happened, but God did it. We didn't have a cookie sale. We didn't have a car wash. We didn't send out letters. We just prayed and asked God to guide and direct us. And he took care of us. In 1994, we were taking the kids up north here for basketball. And that's when the telephones were, you know, like boxes like this. And we'd take it. And it wasn't because they were there late at night. And so we started discussing on maybe we can build a gym. Because there used to be a, a little Gothic church there right where the gym is. The Nazarenes originally started here, and the cornerstone, I believe, was 1929. And the Whittier earthquake, one year to the date that we came in, October 1st of 87, came and destroyed much of uh, many buildings, and it cracked that building. We were all bummed out and everything, you know. But if God hadn't have cracked that building, we would have never demolished it and built the gym. And so we looked to see if we could build a gym, and, and we, we did our homework. And then we said, well, if God's in there, let's just pray, and let's see what happens. And we stepped down, and uh, we began, I believe, in May of 94. We finished in December of 94. And um, it, it probably cost well over 700000 the whole thing, when we were done. And when we were finished and to put the key in the lock and God had paid it all off cash there was no debt we didn't have no special offerings we didn't cry over the pulpit 
We just prayed. We felt the Lord was leading. We did our homework and continued to pray. We stepped out. And time will tell you if God's in something. It's easy to boast. It's easy. And I don't say this to boast. I'm here to encourage you. If you're looking to me thinking that it's because of my faith or because I'm such a great pastor and this is what God has done, you're smoking something. God is just good. I am as shocked at you. But I am smart enough to know that I don't mess with God's accounting system. My responsibility is to pray and teach. And to live within the means that God provides. And he says he will pay all the bills all the time. And that's kind of the arrangement we've had for this love affair of 40 some years. And why would I want to mess it up now? Well, why would I want to pressure you? Why would I want to manipulate you? Why would I want to build my kingdom? The best place is to be right at the feet of Jesus and let him do whatever he wants. And you don't have to worry about anything. He takes care of it. And so, the little things to the big things, he'll commit the most important things, the true things in verse 11, um, the true riches. In verse um, 12, he says, And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, Who will give to you what is your own? And so here Jesus said that irresponsible and fraudulent people in other people's matters and business of money, no one will entrust him. And it's a rhetorical question. There's only one answer. No. If you're not faithful in other people's matters, will they give to you? No. Absolutely not. I mean, how many many brokers or... or, or, uh, or loan agents go out and say, hey, listen, I, bankru- I bankrupt about 100 companies. You, you, I, I, I can really help you out. Who, who's going to hire them? This is what he's saying here. In verses 13, he says, here's the last principle. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one And despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And so Jesus is saying here in principle that you cannot love two things at the same time with equal passion and dedication. It's real simple. You remember ever being in school, whether it was grammar school, junior high school, or high school, and you liked two girls or two guys at the same time? You couldn't do it the same, right? First of all, you had to be quiet and sneak around. Second of all, you lean to one more than the other. That, that's our heart. We're divided. The first illustration is the passion. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the others. Now, you can have two masters, but you can't serve them both. The second illustration is the dedication, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You've got a divided heart. The concluding principle, a divided heart. You cannot serve God 
المعمل David had a whole heart. Solomon had a divided heart. And Saul had no heart. <laughs> whole heart, have heart, no heart. <laughs> and you can go from either end to the other. The one, by looking to yourself, by not being in the word and prayer and fellowship, getting too close to fire to get burned. The other by seeing your wretched condition and repenting and coming back to God. And so these principles are very, very important in this parable. So the punchline again here is in verse 9. I say to you, make friends of yourselves by the righteous mammon, and when you fail, when you die, they may receive you into everlasting homes, not here. So we should learn from people who are trying to get it all here, right? Now you need to be a steward of what God gives you. And it's much better that you be wise in your investments so that you can take care of yourself when you get older and you can help others. Rather than to give everything away and then somebody has to take care of you, right? So... You have to be careful the way people may twist the scripture at times. Uh, how many of people have fallen prey to a bunch of um, deceivers and, and flim-flam people who um, use the word of God to manipulate people. Um, and because they're not grounded in the word and they don't understand, then they get pulled in in different things. And so here the parable of the unjust steward a great teaching for the disciples um, as they were going to be stewards of that which God was going to give to them as Jesus returned back to the Father and Jesus would begin to build his church. In verse 14, down to 18, you have the rebuke of the Pharisees by Jesus. In verse um, 14, the response of the Pharisees to the parable of the unjust steward is interesting here. Now, the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him. They turned their nose up at him. They didn't agree with what he was teaching. Ah, he's ugly. Because they were a bunch of thieves. They were dishonest. They were the unjust steward here. They were doing the very same thing. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your heart. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so the charges of being dishonest with the word of God are the charges Jesus charges the Pharisees with here. They always gave rational reasons to explain their dishonesty, biblically. But they were not fooling God. He knew their heart. Many times people will do things and they'll, they'll say, well, you know, I, this is, and, and they just give you this whole long thing. But after a while, people are known for their lack of integrity. It's one excuse, one justification after another, and there's never any consistency of diligence or trustworthiness or uh, truthfulness. 
Notice they had deceived themselves by accepting and embracing the standards of man when God considered them an abomination. They were admired by men and they admired others and they twisted the scriptures. But God saw it all along and he saw it as an abomination. Much like this unjust steward. In verse 16, the charge against the Pharisees here now is of uh, refusing to repent and to be saved also. This is the theme that runs through this stuff. The law and the prophets were told John the Baptist that time of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. They just heard him. They turned their nose up at him. They're not listening to the word of God. They're not listening to the gospel. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Others are hearing it. They're being convicted. They're just having their hearts rent. They're asking Jesus to forgive them. They're, they're entering the kingdom of God. Them, not them. They're rejecting the gospel. 400 years of silence were broken by John the Baptist. Malachi was the last prophet. John the Baptist opened up. Repent for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is at hand. And since that day, many were entering in. But the Pharisees and scribes were looking down on Jesus because he was accepting the common people, right? Tax collectors, sinners, the common people. In verse 17, the charge against the Pharisees is their accountability for the word of God now. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle. Of the law to fail. So in other words. The illustration is an extreme one. To make it so clear. Regarding the message. That it would be easier for heaven and earth. To pass away than for one tittle. A little marking over the. Hebrew letters that distinguish. The the word accent. How you pronounce it. Because uh, the vowels were left out. From, uh, uh, from days of old. And only consonants were added. Um. And so here again, we know the earth is going to pass away. But God's word, the the truth here is that God's word will never pass away. God will always require his word. His word is, is, is the plumb line. It's the standard. It's what will judge us. And so being clever, being shrewd. Uh, to manipulate, to circumvent the law, to disobey it, and to give this pious appearance, and whatever it is, um, God will require his word. It will never be null and void. It will never be put aside. It is exactly what will judge man, the very revelation that God has given to us. In verse 18, he gives an example of the dishonesty of the Pharisees by their interpretation of marriage. Um, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her and divorces, uh, divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, when you look at some of these things, you say, well, what's the relationship here? But it's, it's the whole aspect of their being unjust. Being dishonest. Um, the topic of marriage and divorce and remarriage 
is dealt with in, in Matthew 5.32 and 19.3 through 9, Mark chapter 10, verse 11 through 12. And Paul deals with it in 1 Corinthians 7. And the only basis for legitimate divorce for the Christian is adultery. That's the only biblical reason a Christian can divorce. If you read 1 Corinthians 7, Paul gives uh, some instructions about that. And he speaks to the one who is a Christian as husband and wife, two Christians. And he says that the only reason that you have to divorce is adultery. If you separate from one another without adultery, you're to remain unmarried or be reconciled. End of story. Many people use that in 1 Corinthians 7 as a right for separation. It's not what it's teaching. He says, if you do depart in rebellion to not departing, you must remain unmarried. Because if you depart and you get divorced without the grounds of adultery, then whoever you marry, you commit adultery and you cause the person who marries your ex to commit adultery. Simple. Okay? Again, Jesus is speaking. They were circumventing the law. They had their interpretation. There was a school of Shemaiah who said only adultery. But then there was a school of Hillel. And you always remember the, the one who's liberal with the L, Hillel. Okay? And he said you could divorce your wife for any reason. And they took the text out of Deuteronomy chapter um, 24, verse uh, 1 through 4, where it says that if you find some uncleanness in your wife, you can give her a right in a divorce. But as Jesus is confronted with this in Matthew 18, he says it's because of the hardness of your heart that Moses gave you that provision, because God hates divorce, Malachi says. And so he speaks about their false interpretation. They interpreted uncleanness to mean anything. So Rabbi Akiba says, if you see a woman who is more beautiful than your own in his eyes, then she becomes unclean. You can give her a right in a divorce. So you give her a right in a divorce, be two witnesses, you're out of here. But Deuteronomy's text 24, 1 through 4, is really a warning to the husband. It's saying, you have no grounds to leave, to divorce her. But if you do give her a right in a divorce, listen to me carefully, the law says. Once you give her that writing and she leaves and she marries another, even if that husband dies, you cannot take her back. Now, that's not for the New Testament. That was for the Jew of the Old Testament. Okay? So you better think real hard before you lose something you might never be able to get back. The guilty party was the husband taking any flimsy ground to get rid of his wife and to get a new one. And they justified it through the oral law, through the interpretations, circumventing, bypassing obedience to the law of God. It was not so from the beginning. Jesus took him back to Genesis because of the hardness of your heart. And so here he gives this example of how it is that they are just unjust. And it's against the word of God. Now, when we get to verse 19 down to 31, you have the story of the rich man and Lazarus that we dealt in depth this morning. If um, you want the in-depth study, you can get it. We'll just go over in general commentary here. Um, 
It's not believed to be a parable by many because we see the personal name of Lazarus given to us and no other parable is ever given with a personal name. And so um, it is taken to be an actual fact. And the information we get here about uh, the place of departed spirits, which is Hades, Sheol of the Old Testament, Hades in the Greek, is such that allows us to see that there's a twofold compartment that those who died went to prior to Jesus Christ dying and being resurrected. And so we're getting revelation of truth that was never known prior to this. And Jesus is the one who's giving this. It is not fictitious. It is not to be spiritualized, but to be taken literally. And so he says there was a certain man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. So he is a very rich man. He lives it up. He has the best of everything and abundance of everything. He, um, he is known for his wild parties and all. But there was also a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores and who was later this gate. And so this man is at the extreme other end. Um, and he is uh, full of sores, ulcers, uh, uh, oozing with pus and I'm sure dirty and, and great pain. And he's put at the gate by someone just to see if he might be able to get some food as he will show us from the crumbs of the table. And so you have these two individuals that um, that are completely at complete opposite ends. And I'm sure that as we see here, the rich man was totally oblivious to Lazarus. Lazarus only knows that he's hungry and that he's in pain and he needs some mercy and pity. And in 21, he says, desire to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So as you can imagine, this man is hungry. He's, he's waiting to be fed made from the scraps. And often when they ate, they would clean their hands, as I said this morning, with a piece of bread, the oil, because they didn't eat with forks and that. And uh, they would toss the bread on the floor and the house puppies, the dogs, they would eat it. And here um, they're, they're even licking the sores of, uh, of Lazarus. And um, uh, most likely a nuisance, but also at the same time, um, some relief, perhaps. Um, so it's kind of a sweet sour. But their life on earth in these three verses is, is so totally opposed from one extreme to the other. And often in, in many parts of the world, these are the extremes in which people live. America is a very unique country in that there has been so much uh, wealth because of the entrepreneurism and the system that we have that's a free market. Now, many have vilified it. Uh, in the past uh, uh, seven, eight years, our administration, um, with the false pretense and the only purpose is to destroy our economy. And, um, and yet it is a free market that produces. You, you can print money. But when you print money and destroy wealth, you dilute the value of that dollar. You have to create wealth. You can't print wealth. And if you break those who make and give the jobs, the wealthy, and you make them poor, then everybody's poor. And the wealth of a nation goes out. 
It's real simple. Look at any socialist country and see if anybody's happy. See if anybody's living like you are here in America. And how our nation has been depleted in the last six and a half years through the distribution of wealth and through all kinds of lies and manipulations. I'm just glad that we're uh, pilgrims and sojourners, that this is not our home. You know what I mean? When the rapture comes, they can have my house, everything. The world's going to be real happy when the rapture happens. They're going to have all kinds of money as as, uh, the Christians leave their properties and everything. Um, Here again, the two extremes. In verse 22, it says, So it was that the beggar died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. So the two extremes now. Lazarus dies. He's carried by the angels. So the believer is under the hand of God. Uh, angels are ministering spirits to the earth of salvation, Hebrews one fourteen says. The rich man, though he was a good investor in this earth, was not a good investor in the things of God, the eternal things. Um, Lazarus, he didn't have much to do with the physical because of his condition, but he was wealthy in terms of God. The true riches that we saw in chapter 16, verse 11. And so here again, um, I'm sure he had a huge funeral, very costly. The best of best spoke for him, how good he was, and benevolent, whatever it may be. And as I've said, uh, funerals are the places where more lies are spoken than any place else. Um, because we don't want to tell the truth about people. And yet what a difference a funeral is when someone who's born again and someone who's not. There's such mourning and crying and sadness. And yet at a Christian funeral, there's such joy. Though we will miss the one, but we know where they're at. It's a joy that now they're not suffering anymore. They're with the Lord and it won't be long before we see them. But when you're not a believer and you don't know exactly what happens, um, you, you're kind of left on your own. Now, in verse 23, it says, And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So here's the sharp contrast. He never paid heed to Lazarus in the world. Now, all of a sudden, they're in Hades. They've been translated, transferred. And, and here he's in torments and pain, and, and Abraham is... Um, on the other side, and he sees Lazarus being comforted by the father of faith. Now, he identifies Abraham, so he must be a Jew. And then he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my uh, my tongue, for I am in torments in these flames. Don't Don't dilute this. Don't water this down. Don't don't be pressured by those who say, well, if that's your God, I, I, I can't have anything to do with that type of God. Oh, well, you know, you're the loser, not God. This is a warning. This is a warning call if you're not a Christian, that this is what awaits you if you don't know Jesus Christ. God doesn't say this with a smack of the lips. He does it with a broken heart. You as a parent, you will warn your children over and over again because you love them. You want the best for them. Not because you want them to feel miserable. And so here, he calls for pity, for for some relief. Hades. 
The place of the departed spirits. The same word as the Old Testament shield. Two compartments. Those of faith, those without faith. And yes, when Jesus died, he told the thief on the cross in Luke 43, 23, today you will be with me in paradise. The bosom of Abraham, the place of comfort, Sheol, Hades, all identify the same place of those who are waiting in faith. Jesus descended to the lowest parts, Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20 says he preached to those who were dying, waiting in faith. And Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says he scooped them up and took them to heaven and transferred paradise. Now in heaven where Paul was caught up in 2 Corinthians 12, 4. So now this place, Hades, is a one full compartment. So those who die without Jesus Christ now, not saved, go there immediately after they give their last breath. The believer who dies... And gives his last breath immediately as present before Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 1, 8. His body goes to the grave. His spirit and soul go before the Lord. And when the Lord comes for us in the rapture. 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. We will be caught up with them. Who's them? The bodies that will be glorified to meet those that are coming down to meet us in the clouds. And so we will be forever with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 4. 18 says. And so, information here that we don't have anywhere else. He's in torments. He died without Christ. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you receive good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Now, this doesn't mean that because he had luxury and material things, so God's punishing him. No. He's saying because your concentration and focus and investment was on the material things in the material world and the future of your life on earth, not on the things of God and there wasn't eternity, this is what you've sown. Where Lazarus, he was a man of God. He trusted me in his suffering and his pain and he looked to me and now he is being comforted. I haven't let him in here just because he's poor and I haven't sent you to hell just because you're rich. This has been on the basis of your faith, whether you trusted God to forgive you of your sin, to make you a child of God. And so in verse 26 says, and besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fix, a chasm. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Death is described as separation from God. Once you die, you enter eternity. You will live forever with God or separated from God. And all the argument and all the rationalization and all the arguments that you have mean absolutely nothing. Read it again. They both died they both were present in eternity on opposite ends. And one could not go to the other. Now it's shield, just one place. Hades, right? Christians go instantly present before the Lord. Again, there's a separation. Those in heaven don't go down to hell, and those in hell don't go up to heaven. 
the separation is still there. Verse 27 says, Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that, and, and that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Notice he could see, he could think, he could understand, he can recollect, he can, he, he has this, this anxiety, he, 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 he doesn't want his brothers to come. And he has no body. Because when you die, your body is put into the ground. Or is burned up with fire. And probably the Lazarus body was probably cast into the valley of Hinnom where the fire was never quenched and the worm never dies. And Jesus used that as the eternal abode of the lake of fire. And he knows that his brothers probably will end up where he's at. Demonstrating that he had the scriptures. Demonstrating that they also have the scriptures. But knowing that they're not going to obey like he did not obey. They're not going to believe like he did not believe. And that day, Matthew 7 says, they will say to the Lord, But Lord, we cast out demons. We did, he says, I never knew you. And there are a lot of people who may have a Bible, who may go to church, who may give money, who may do whatever, and yet they're not honoring the Lord, they're not living for the Lord. Yet God is always there to turn us, to call us back, to plead with us because he loves us. Verse 29 says, Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He was offering an alternative. God does no, 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 no. The scriptures are not enough. They're not sufficient. No, Abraham says, he corrects them. No, they are. The scriptures is all you need. You don't need a miracle. You don't need someone to come back from the dead. And by the way, when God, when Jesus raised Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, the chief priests tried to kill him. They didn't believe <laughs> And by the way, Jesus raised, was risen from the dead, and people still don't believe. They will not repent. So even in his lost state, he still is an unbeliever in what God has said. Verse 21 says, but he said to him, if they do not hear Moses... And the prophets, neither will they persuade the one rise from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is so well attested. He appeared to the twelve many times, five hundred all in one time. The evidence in the New Testament, and yet people do not believe. They give all kinds of rationale and excuses. And the Bible is just written by man. Well, well, show me another book written by man that has prophecies of such detail. And the fulfillments. There's not one book. Not one religious book. The evidence stands against man. He will stand before God with all his unbelief and dismay. As God judges man for his rebellion against God. And yet God will do all that he can to reach lost man. 
When man is lost, it is his own doing in rebellion to all of God's attempts to convict him or her and to turn them that they might repent. No one will ever stand before Jesus and say, you never gave me an opportunity. I never heard the gospel. I guarantee you that no one has ever died without one opportunity. Because if a person dies, if just one person dies without having an opportunity, then God cannot be just. He cannot be holy. He cannot be fair. He cannot be good. In fact, he has to be a liar. If God sent his son to die for the whole world, that means everybody that's born into this world must have at least one opportunity. Let me give you the clear scenario. Two thieves on the cross. Both heard Jesus. One accepted, another rejected. End of story. That's the way it is with everyone who's born in this world. I cannot tell you how, when, or where, but I don't have to. I base it on the character of God. He has sent his son to die for the whole world. Therefore, all will have one opportunity. So when God judges them, he is just. And the punishment is deserving because it was of one's own choice to accept or reject, which is really a sin against love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Father, we thank you for your grace and love. Thank you for tonight. Lord, we pray you continue to deal with our hearts as we move through the word. Thank you for every person tonight. And Lord, we pray that as we meditate on these things, that you would just minister to us. And Father, as we ponder the scriptures, your goodness. And Lord, help us to be wise investors in the kingdom as we pray for the lost friends and loved ones, as we reach out to them, as we serve you, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to turn from your sins. Um, the Holy Spirit turns on the light and he convicts you. And the Holy Spirit will prompt you to turn, but he will not turn you. He will not save you apart from your will. Um, uh, whosoever wills, the Bible says. Uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Um, uh, the message is repent. Um, if it was uh, God's doing and not yours, why call you to repent? It would be God who did it completely. You would be useless and irrelevant for the invitation. But it is a choice that is offered to you. So if you want to know Jesus Christ and have him forgive you of your sins and recognizing that you're a sinner in need of a Savior then that's the work of the Spirit of God. Maybe you're over the Internet. If you want to accept Him, this is your prayer to Him, not to us. And He's going to forgive you and save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your Spirit. I accept you. As my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.